Last night, Carol gave a very inspiring talk on this uh, theme of yata bhuta, yata bhuta, yanadasana, seeing things clearly, getting into, becoming intimate with our experience and knowing it as it actually is, yata bhuta. And it really is the essence of our practice. It's what we're cultivating here, this ability to be fully present with as minimal as possible a sense of interference between us and our experience, seeing through the, the layers of conditioning, of projection, of filters that are typically there in our experience. Tonight I want to talk about some um, skillful means that help support that clear seeing, and also what often tends to happen as we move closer to our experience in that way. These retreats are designed to foster that kind of clear seeing. We take away, I was going to say all, I'm sure it's not all, most of your distractions. You can still come up with quite a lot. I'm sure you've figured out where they are and how to do that by now. But there's a lot that aren't here. No, I won't even mention one of the big ones of today. Um, email, movies, newspapers, etc., etc. Hopefully, you haven't found a way to access that. And so we're just... <laughs> 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 Maybe we should be checking a little more closely. Know, getting a little suspicious now. But what tends to happen is we take away those, those crutches that we often rely on to keep us um, busy, to keep us uh, a little distance from what we're actually feeling. It's kind of simplifying as we're doing here. We can start to see much more clearly these tendencies of mind, our conditioned habits, our reactivity, our neuroses even because there's not the distractions that there normally are or the busyness of our everyday life. We start to see the stories that we believe about ourselves, about others, and about the world. And there's a real opportunity in that. But it's not easy to do, to stay connected all the time with this direct experience. Many things which keep us moving away from that, moving out of that connection. Because often what we see are ways in which we've been unskillful or ways in which we've been hurt by others. This um, uh, opening to what can, we can call a life review even, where things that you thought were well in hand or forgotten, buried in the midst of time, can come up for us on retreat. Some of them you might have expected, they're fresh, they're new, the the feelings around them are still very much part of your present experience. Others from long ago, you didn't even know you were still holding on to in some way. This process is a very common experience to have and actually a very important part of our process. As we move closer into touch with the truth of reality, we need to see everything, everything it, that we take to be the truth about ourselves. There's this beautiful uh, poem by this 10th century Japanese uh, poet 
that just encapsulates what can happen on a retreat like this. It says, watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I know myself completely, no part left out. And that really speaks to this simplicity that happens on retreat, this connection we have with the present moment, with nature, with a sense of being, and this possibility to know ourselves completely, no part left out. And so this is what some, a big part of our work here, to include everything, accept everything in our own experience, our inner world, the outer world. This is a big part of what we do here. And this process of acceptance often happens through what we've been terming purification. You might hear that word and think, well, that sounds like a good thing to happen, or you know, perhaps it's just like taking a warm shower and a bit of soap. You know, it just kind of all washes off, very pleasant and easeful, just let go. I have some bad news for you. It's a bit more like going through an asteroid belt. You know, you're going to get beat up a little in this process. It's not that easy or simple, but it's necessary for us to move through this process of purification to get to the expansiveness that's there on the other side, in the far reaches of space. And I'm sure many of you well, you had to find some way to tell your friends what you were doing for this month or two months, you know. And if you say, I'm going on retreat, they probably have these imaginings of spas and massages and, and uh, lolling around in your, your bathrobe. Um, I guess you figured out this is not what we're up to here. It's much more like a pressure cooker where we're really turning the heat up on this get, really getting intimate with who we are and our experience. And this is very much the fire of purification. It can be painful. It can be really uh, upsetting or disturbing as this process starts to happen, as we start to cook, as we often say. But our willingness to stay present, to be in the fire of this process, is really a big part of the transformation, the letting go, the purification that can happen to bring acceptance to all of these experiences, no part left out. And metta practice can be a really skillful and helpful uh, support in going through this process. It's why we always teach it, even on what is mainly a vipassana or mindfulness retreat. These afternoon sessions of Brahma Viharas are really so helpful to give us both some tools to work with difficulties when they come up, but also to keep coming back to and bringing back in this sense of warmth or kindness or acceptance towards ourselves. It really warms up what can sometimes be a cool or impersonal practice. This direct knowing as we let go and see through our conditionings can seem a little on the cool side. Metta brings the warmth the friendliness, the heart, that actually gives us the energy and the courage to keep coming back and facing these difficult experiences if that's what's happening for us. And it affirms that sense, that that wish that we have, that meant to have been fully formed, that we do want to be happy. 
We even have a right to be happy, that the happiness is possible, that freedom and well-being are what we really deeply care about for ourselves and, of course, for others. As I said in my metta yesterday, I really see metta as like a big yes to life. Yes to ourselves, yes to others, yes to experience. So a really helpful thing, quality and practice. But metta is a purification practice. If any of you have done intensive metta retreats, you'll know we often talk about it in that way. Anytime we have an intentional practice, where we create um, a, a direction, as we do with the metta phrases. We're very clearly saying, may I be happy. I wish this for myself. This is the direction I want to cultivate in my life. Or may you be happy. Anytime we set up intentions like that, whatever are the obstacles to us experiencing that will naturally arise. And people can often be disheartened by that. You know, I'm not feeling metta. I'm actually feeling the opposite. I'm feeling angry or sad or lonely. And it's hard to hear the answer that always is, that's actually the practice working. Whatever obstacles are coming up, your willingness to be with those, to stay steady and present with some degree of acceptance without adding reactivity or judgment, without proliferating around these responses is what actually begins this transformation of these experiences. So all of the difficult emotions can come up, anger, sadness, fear, loneliness, our willingness to just feel them, as Carol was talking about this morning, to know them directly, yata bhuta, without getting lost in the story, without making it all about me and my anger, and I'm always angry or I'm always fearful, but just to be fully present with that sense of kindness that metta can bring, that acceptance that says, this too, this is part of my experience. It doesn't define me. It doesn't limit me. It's not who I am, but I need to know this and accept this to actually find a more skillful way of relating to it. So this acronym of RAIN that we've talked about a few times is so helpful. Many of you have told me that you're using it, just recognizing what's present, accepting or allowing it, just letting it be, getting curious about it, investigation or interest. So we actually start to move closer to this experience. And then the non-identification not taking it so personally, not making it a story about me, but just this arising out of conditions that's impermanent, temporary, subject to change. Again, we'll have more on this last aspect of non-identification as we go through the retreat, but just for the moment to keep it simply as not personal, not a story about me, When this process begins, for some of you, you're right in it now. You know, it could happen tomorrow. Maybe it's not an issue for you at all in any major way. But to some extent or another, it generally happens for most people, to some degree or another. It can be a little overwhelming at first. I mean, we have this idea that we came here to meditate, 
to find peace, happiness, and freedom. And here I am roiled by these emotions, these regrets or these fears, these stories about myself, this sense of blaming or judgment. What's going on? What's wrong? And it's it's understandable. It, It can be quite strong, quite overpowering. Mindfulness and metta show us there's a different way of being with those strong experiences. Sharon Salzberg, in this wonderful little book called Faith, where she has so many great stories of her own practice and the many challenges that she faced, but also stories from other people, has a a little example of this. Whatever takes us to our edge, to our outer limits, leads us to the heart of life's mystery. And there we find faith. In the process, however, we may have to confront many old habits. When my asthma attack began, my first impulse was to fight against it, to get through it with steely resolve. Flailing against my inability to breathe, I was swept up in the relentless momentum of panic. I was not only afraid, but worse, I was afraid of being afraid. I fought the fear and tangled with it, hating myself for my powerlessness in the face of it. The whirlwind of terror grew, and I pushed against it and pushed against it. The more I tried to resist the fear, the stronger it became until exhausted, I gave up the struggle. Without the support of my tension and resistance, the fear immediately lessened and I began to remember insights I'd gained through years of practice. I don't really know what's happening here. Be aware of that determined slide to the worst possible, barely imaginable scenario. You don't have to go there. Let's just see what happens now. I was still afraid, but I wasn't cascading down the slippery slope of trying to claim control and feeling powerless when I couldn't. I was afraid, but I wasn't cut off from remembering the power of being in the moment and the possibilities held latent there. The panic, the grief, the grasping for breath didn't vanish, but now they seemed to float like buoys on an underlying calm. The thick atmosphere that had seemed so oppressive began to thin out. My mind, which had drawn back into a tight corner of dread, found there was room to move. I could feel my heart rise up in my chest. Though I still had fear, I also had faith. So this process will challenge us. We'll feel pushed into corners sometimes, those places that we're afraid to go. We really need to come to that place of faith where we find the moments when we think, I can't bear this anymore, I can't do this. That next breath, that just a moment of letting go to see that we can, we can bear it, we can open. And mindfulness and metta are such great tools for giving us that strength and that capacity for coming again into yata bhuta, seeing things as they are without a lot of the story. But it's really important to also know that you don't have to push through these experiences. You don't have to 
figure it out. You don't, certainly don't have to stir it up or keep going back to some place that's really difficult or frightening for you. This is really important to get. All we have to do is touch this experience enough for the, ex- the, the emotions or responses to arrive, to get triggered, whatever it might be. And then it's actually more skillful to back away a little, to come into some sense of spaciousness using the breath, using the body, using metta, and find a way to balance and open to the experience so that we can be there more fully. It's not that helpful to have agendas of, you know, no, I've got to push through this, I've got to fix it, I've got to know this or understand this. Really trust me on this, not so helpful. Trust the process that's happening here. Trust the simplicity of the practice. Trust being present in that kind, open way that metta tells us is possible, rather than thinking we need to dive into this most difficult aspect to our experience. At the same time, we don't want to create no-fly zones, no-go zones, places where we don't want to be, don't feel safe. So there's this tension that gets created in our practice that we really need to bring our skill to, our wisdom, our kindness and our compassion. This willingness to move forward so that it's not some place, some experience that we don't trust ourselves in, but also knowing when it's wiser and more skillful to back away and find a sense of resilience, the resources or the refuges that we have, and to see our practice as this process again and again, touching whatever might be difficult and then coming back to finding this sense of balance or ease. This is a dynamic practice that we need to be engaged in. It's not a macho, you know, let's go there and slash and burn and figure this out. But really, a gentle approach is by far the most skillful way of, of working in this area. But it's important not to use our metta practice to get rid of a problem. Oh, I'll just do, I'm feeling a little angry. I'll do metta so, you know, I won't feel that anymore. We, we describe that as, it's like having a big club with metta written on it, you know, going around and just banging away, flailing away at whatever's there in front of us. Not such a helpful way to relate to experience, but really to use the metta to cultivate acceptance. Acceptance of what we're feeling, acceptance of the difficulty, and to show us another possibility, another way of responding. Even if you don't do the formal practice, don't necessarily say the phrases, but just this sense of this willingness to meet the moment with some kindness, within the background this this holding of the wish for ourselves to be happy, to be open, to have a loving heart, to meet this experience as fully as we can. So this formal practice that we've been doing every day and that some of you are doing intensively is such a great um, support for this because that's what it's doing, developing this open, responsive heart, strengthening that metta muscle. Now, of course, our mindfulness practice does that too. And 
you know, you probably know that from all the retreats you've done where we haven't done formal metta practice. This, this um, practice of being with our experience naturally brings in the kindness and compassion. It just is there as we open to what's true. We just see how difficult life is. We see how much we suffer. And the kindness and compassion naturally arise. But doing the practice intentionally was for me, and I know for most of us, so helpful to really rewrite that story that says you don't deserve to be happy or that happiness isn't available in this moment. So we do it deliberately. And part of the training is to do it even when the conditions aren't ideal, even when we're not feeling it. But it doesn't mean that we, we use the practice to kind of become inanely happy. It's not about pushing everything that's difficult away and holding on to my meta, you know, my meta feeling. I kind of joked in the meta about people stomping out. I was so angry, I couldn't do meta. This was so frustrating. Like that's when we need to do meta to open to the difficulty, to see, not to ignore suffering, but to see that's part of life. One of my favorite teachers about this is Calvin and Hobbes. And it's another one of his classic cartoons. For those of you who know, Calvin, the little boy, Hobbes, his imaginary tiger. And they often are there with a little red cart that they ride on. So here's Calvin taking off with the red cart. And Hobbes always has this look of kind of bemusement. What's he thinking about now? Calvin is speaking, saying, My life could be a lot better than it is. I'm happy, but it's not like I'm ecstatic. <laughs> Life is like topography, Hobbes. There are summits of happiness and, and success, and they're proceeding to pull a little red wagon up the hill. Flat stretches of boring routine, and now they're taking off down the hill. Valleys of frustration and failure. But I'm dedicating myself to experiencing only peaks. I want my life to be one never-ending ascension. Each minute of every day should bring me greater joy than the previous minute. I should always be saying, my life is better than I ever imagined it would be, and it's only going to improve. I'm just going to go from peak to peak. I'm, and then, you know, as always happens, they fly off the cliff, and there's whoops as they fall down. And Hobbes says, at least with flat places, you don't have so far to go down. And this is as they're falling. Calvin says, only losers go down. For me, it's only going to be up and up as he's falling before he splats. It's not about that. It's not about trying to claim some never-ending happiness. I think it was Carol, one of us talking. Maybe it was me. I don't know. Carol talking. <laughs> about the Buddha's life not being one where he didn't have challenges. You know, all kinds of things happened in his life. He awoke into that, and, and, and that became his practice of staying open and compassionate. So it's not about holding on to something. And it's not about creating some ideal concept of what metta is. Oh, if I'm feeling metta, you know, there should be this ecstatic golden light radiating from my heart, including everything and everyone, every part of my experience. That's what metta is. And any time we're not at that, 
then it's not good enough. I'm not doing it right. I need to do it better or more. This is not helpful. Certainly wasn't helpful for me. I had some of those ideas on my metta retreat. Helpful to keep it really simple. Metta as it, at it, in its essence is just acceptance. Literally means friendliness or goodwill, kindness. Think of it like that, not love or even unconditional love, but just being okay with what is, with ourselves or with others. Then we can actually allow that building, that feeling to grow, allow the metta connection to be there because we're not judging it and wanting to be other than it is. And metta shows us the possibility that's there for us when we do meet our experience with this friendly and kind way. It's just such a powerful adjunct, complement, support for our practice. One of the things that can, can be a real obstacle to the development of our metta practice, but even to this purification that I already spoke about, is not being able or willing to forgive, to forgive ourselves or to forgive others. This, this um, tendency to keep the, for the heart to stay closed when we're just not able to let go in that way. But as I spoke about, as we come closer to our direct experience, as we take away the distraction, this life review can come up, and a lot of what it is, is things we wish we hadn't said or done, or things that were said or done to us that hurt us, that impacted us in in powerful ways. This process of purification often begins with this deep sense of forgiveness of being willing to let go, of being willing to offer this gesture of acceptance. This is what happened. This is how it was. This is how it was for me. This is how it was for you. We can do that in a formal way, as we did the other day in the guided meditation, where we formally say these phrases of offering forgiveness. Whatever way I have hurt or harmed, anyone, I ask for forgiveness. What any way that others have hurt or harmed me, knowingly or unknowingly, to the extent that I'm able, offering forgiveness. And especially offering forgiveness to ourselves, whatever way I've hurt or harmed others, whatever ways I've hurt or harmed myself, knowingly or unknowingly, being willing to offer forgiveness such an important part of this process. The Buddha talked about this in the Dhammapada, that beautiful collection of verses and sayings. On a Dhammapada, it means literally the way of the Dhamma, the path of the Dhamma. He said, look how he beat, abused and beat me, how he threw me down and robbed me. Live with such thoughts and you live in hate. Look how he abused me and beat me, how he threw me down and robbed me, abandon such thoughts and live in love. In this world, hate never yet dispelled hate. Only love dispels hate. 
This is an ancient and eternal law. You too shall pass away. Knowing this, how can you quarrel? Hate never yet dispelled hate. Only love dispels hate. This is an ancient and eternal law. So this necessity almost of being willing to let go of past hurts and grievances towards ourselves and others is an important part of the purification that I've been talking about. This willingness to move into the realm of forgiveness. Forgiveness literally means, the dictionary, to grant pardon without harboring resentment, to forgive, to give up. It's one of the ultimate acts of letting go, letting go of this story, letting go of our ill will, our judgment, our resentment, letting go of the the hold these events have had on our lives, the way they've constructed our reality, our view of ourselves, our view of the other. It's important to know a number of things about forgiveness, though, because it is such a powerful act, such a challenging act, such a deep process of letting go. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we condone behavior that was hurtful or unskillful. It doesn't mean we minimize or forget what happened. It doesn't mean we have to become friends with people that have hurt us or keep them in our lives even, if that's, we're really at that point. But it does mean we're willing to learn from those experiences where we, and we're willing to learn also how to protect ourselves, perhaps how to act more skillfully. And it's important to recognize there are very different levels of unskillful behavior and that what I might say about forgiveness mightn't apply to the most or the deepest harm that might have happened to you. You need to be the, the, the judge or the person who recognizes what's right for you. I'm talking about places where there is the possibility of forgiveness, where there's some place in you that knows that that would be a healing. Sometimes there's, there's things that we're just not ready to forgive, and we need to honor that, to be okay with that, to trust ourselves on that. So there's cases of extreme abuse that might have happened, This is not the area of practice that I'm talking about. That needs a different kind of practice. Because taking care of ourselves, finding this degree of faith or confidence that Sharon talked about is really essential in this. We really need to know that that's there or that we can grow into that, that we can learn about that. And to know that this practice takes time. It's not something that happens immediately or overnight. We need to feel a degree of safety, strength, and confidence in our practice, in the supports that we have, in our mindfulness now metta to move into this process. We can't forgive before we're ready, can't have an agenda about forgiving. It just might not be appropriate yet. But even to hold the possibility of forgiveness, that at some point I might be ready to forgive. 
I actually think that's a big part of the healing, to know that there's that sense of possibility or space in the mind. A little while ago, I read uh, Stephen Batchelor's book called Living with the Devil. It's a really interesting book. It's basically his meditations or reflections on the nature of good and evil and why even though we all have this, so, so much have this sincere intention to be good, to develop the wholesome, to find freedom, all of the things that are the impediment to that. And he can encapsulate that with this uh, entity of Mara. Mara is the personification of evil in the Buddhist teachings, a little like the devil or Satan in Christianity. Um, and what I found interesting in his depictions of Mara, and he drew from a lot of different sources, usually think of Mara as this kind of tempter, you know, coming in and offering us stuff that, that you know, we, we want and we get lost in. But really, um, he saw from the text and also other traditions that Mara actually represents stuckness or frozenness or death. And he, he took part of this from Dante's Inferno, you know, where one of the hells is a frozen hell. And in the distance, you see Satan, who's this huge figure. But instead of, I always think of Satan as kind of the fiery and, you know, out there with the pitchfork kind of thing. This Satan is frozen, stuck in the ice up to his waist. And he's frozen there. It was such a kind of shift in perspective or understanding for me to see this, to see how a lot of where I know I get stuck isn't often so much in the doing, it's in the not doing or the stuckness in my habit patterns or my views about myself. And that the, the, the key counterpoint to this sense of stuckness or frozenness is that of the path. And my, in my first talk, I talked about the archetypal path for us as Buddhist practitioners is the Eightfold Path and how, how dynamic that is. How, the concept of path is that of movement, of development, of learning, of opening, of growing. And just to feel how Mara for us can represent, actually feel embodied in this sense of stuckness. And this, you know, in thinking about this, also saw how not being able to forgive is that same kind of stuckness. It solidifies us. It's like the insect caught in amber. We get solidified in a relationship to someone or something when we can't forgive. And really saw how that was another manifestation of Mara, the stuckness of not forgiving. But there are many reasons why we get stuck in this way, get stuck in not forgiving. And sometimes it can be helpful to look and know that for ourselves, if this is up for you. And again, it could be something that's really large, looming in your life, in the moment or from the past. This mightn't be something that's very active, but even from day to day, we can start harboring resentments or grudges about people here on the retreat. And this process, practice of forgiveness, ourselves of the other can still be helpful, even if it's in the smallest of ways. But sometimes, as I already said, we're just not ready. The hurt, whatever it is, is too deep. It's too fresh. It's, it's too raw for us to move. And to again, no, not to force that, to let it 
unfold. I'm really talking now about when we feel in some way or another ready to let go of these grievances. But we have to recognize that not forgiving is easier usually than forgiving. Forgiving is a process. It requires a lot of us. Sharon Salzberg, in her other book on on loving-kindness, says that forgiving is actually a kind of death. She says, to be able to forgive is so deep a letting go that it is a type of dying. We have to be able to say, I am not that person anymore. You are not that person anymore. Really to see what, what, how deep that letting go can be. But sometimes we don't think that other person has changed, and that's part of the problem. Or they maybe even they're, they're dead. Forgiveness can still happen. Where we can still be the active participants in a forgiveness process. And our willingness to see that we have changed is what's much more important. And to see, even though it's a kind of dying, it's not the death into nothing, but a, a death into a rebirth. In that letting go, letting go of that weight, that burden, that contraction of the lack of forgiveness. There's a, a life that happens. Forgiveness doesn't mean that what we say what happened was okay, or that we minimize or condone it. We have to recognize and accept the feelings that happened then and it might be happening now about it, of anger or hurt or confusion or fear but recognizing that not forgiving actually is going to keep us trapped in those emotions. Again, like that image of Satan, kind of frozen, stuck. Such a helpful image. But I know for me it's like if I think I'm going to forgive someone about something, then I have, there's a, it's kind of like a domino effect. Then there are all these things. I, I, I can kind of get to that one. But does that mean then I have to forgive all these other things? And I'm just not ready. It seems like there's this whole process that I'll get involved in. To really, to see, we need to just keep moving forward in this, even if we don't feel quite ready. Sometimes there can be a whole identification around our not forgiving, that we're the victim here, that there was some injustice done, that... that uh, Uh, I'm right and I'm wrong, it can actually excuse us from a whole uh, sense or possibility of taking responsibility for what happened, for our part in that process. And resentment has such a juiciness to it sometimes. It's like, I'm right and you're wrong, and it just validates this sense of self that's been hurt, that's had injustice to it. But to really realize as we hold on to that, it's ultimately disempowering. We're giving this other person control over our sense of well-being as we hold on to this resentment, this resistance. A big one can be they haven't apologized yet. I'm not going to forgive them until they own up to what they did that was wrong. And it's understandable again. You know, it's like that this justice that needs to be done. They need to recognize what they did 
that hurt me, that harmed me or harmed others. But again, we're giving those people, often the person, how many times has it happened where we're holding this resentment and whoever it was is off happily living their lives, not even aware that we're stewing in this sense of resentment and anger about it. In, in not forgiving, we're giving them control over our sense of well-being. And a big part of the forgiveness, as the practice points us to, is being willing to forgive ourselves and to really step into this place that says, this is who I am in this moment. All of these experiences have gone up to make me who I am in this conditioned sense, not in some ultimate sense, but this fullness of acceptance. That phrase that I used in the metta practice, may I love and accept myself just as I am, or to know myself completely, no part left out. We need to be able to forgive ourselves all of the times that we were unskillful, harmed ourselves, harmed others, didn't know what to do. This is so important. When we're not ready to forgive, though, we just buy into this self-righteousness, this I'm right, I'm, you're, I'm and you're wrong, all the indignation, the, the judgments that come, and all we can see is what's wrong with the other person or the other experience, and that to forgive would mean giving in, would mean letting them get away with it. So many examples of how we cut ourselves off from life through that, through not being willing to give in. One really small example, but it was, it was almost comical. It was so ridiculous for me in, in this kind of experience. I was traveling with my husband in Thailand. We were staying in Bangkok at this hotel. And at the hotel, it had a restaurant. The restaurant had a, a set menu breakfast. And it was just so easy to go downstairs in the morning and have breakfast, know it was there, it was simple, it was easy, it wasn't anything special, it was a very, you know, not a very fancy hotel. And each day at breakfast, we usually had tea. It was part of the breakfast. One morning, I ordered tea, but then I changed my mind, and I called the waitress back and said, no, no, I'd rather have coffee. She said, sure, fine, came back, brought the coffee, had breakfast, got the bill, on the bill was extra coffee. So I called the waitress back and said, no, 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 look, you know, I had coffee, not tea. It's part of the um, set menu here. She said, no, 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 extra. You ordered extra. And obviously in this restaurant, they hadn't quite got the concept of the customer is always right. I had to argue with her. No, no, no. You know, I just had no tea, just coffee. No, no, no. She, was, she wouldn't change it. She would not take the coffee off the bill. And I would not let my husband come back to that restaurant from that moment on. It was just such a sense of indig indignation. And, you know, I'm embarrassed. What would that have been? 75 cents at the most? 50 cents? We don't want people to get away with it. Yet who was hurt in that example? I mean, we had to traipse out of the hotel every morning and find another place to have breakfast because I wouldn't let us go back. Yet we do this all the time. I told this story to some friends. We were staying in this hotel who were living in Thailand at the moment, and this guy, he said, 
I know what you mean, my girlfriend, we, we live in this town, it's a small town, there's only a few restaurants. One by one, she got upset with each restaurant, something they did wrong. So we don't have any, we can't go out to eat anymore because she's written them all off. This is what we do. We cut ourselves off through our inability just to accept things, just to forgive. Uh, Sylvia Borstein talks about when we're in this state and she's just kind of saying to herself, can't I just have five minutes of vengeful thoughts, then I'll stop. And to see it's really not worth it. Those five minutes of venge, we can't stop. You know, we, we perpetuate those patternings. To really see who are we hurting as we hold on to these beliefs, these, this sense of frustration or indignation at the injustice of the world. To just see this is how it is. Sometimes we have to see in ourselves this tendency towards cruelty or revenge. We want the other to suffer. And it's interesting how we can be okay with being an angry person or even having anger as kind of an empowerment, but to really see this tendency towards cruelty. It's not so pretty. We don't like that so much, but sometimes that's actually what's happening. It's the opposite of metta. We're wishing ill instead of wishing well. So to really use our practice to come back to seeing what we really think know is helpful for ourselves. So through all this, I still want to emphasize that we need to learn and know how to protect ourselves. This is not just opening ourselves up for people to take advantage of us. It doesn't mean we have a strong voice in the world. It's just we know what battles to fight and when not to fight them. And we know what's really most important, which is this sense of well-being, of taking care of ourselves. Because we do come to this place in our life, in our practice, where we see it's got to include this too, this place of disconnection, this place of letting go. And so often it's just as simple as some time. That time is a, it's a cliche, but it does heal the wounds. Maybe not all wounds, but possibly. What's important about this, though, is we need to look and revisit that experience. So often we've given it a label, this terrible thing that happened to me, and we solidify it like that. Instead of, But when we actually look at the experience, we see, oh, I don't have that charge anymore. I don't feel that same way about that person or that incident. But we've sealed it off as this experience that's untouchable to actually come back and say, oh yeah, I am a different person. It has shifted. So it's a lot about seeing how we are in relationship to the past. There's this great line, forgiveness means giving up all hope for a better past. If there's any exercise, there's not many things we can do on retreat that are more futile than trying to reimagine our past. How many mind moments have you spent with phrases like, if only, or I should have, or why didn't I? You know, reimagining whole conversations, whole interactions. They've gone. There is nothing more not here than those experiences. Yet we drag them up and try to refashion them. Ultimate 
form of suffering. Well, not ultimate form of suffering. There's many worse things we can do, but still, <laughs> ultimate in futility to really try to do this. Forgiveness means giving up all hope for a better past. This is what happened to us. And we need to put these things in perspective of what we really value in life and to see, to recognize the peace of mind that comes with this letting go. As Jack Cornfield always says, you know, think about yourself on your deathbed. What will you want to reflect about? What will, what will be important to you? Your relationships, the things you did that you valued, the, the difference that you made in the world. In the world. Can you imagine being on your deathbed and saying, I'm really glad I kept a hold of that grudge. That's really satisfying. You know? No, we want to be able to say, I let go. I forgave. I kept my heart open as best I could. And you can read so many stories about the power of forgiveness, this possibility of transformation. One that was is in the news a little bit at the moment is the story of Nelson Mandela, that great movie. I haven't actually seen it yet, but I've heard about it, Invictus. Just this story about the possibility of reconciliation, all of the suffering that is there and, you know, is still there in South Africa, not to deny, you know, the challenges of what they went through, but how he, after being jailed for his beliefs as a political prisoner for 27 years, forgave the people that jailed him. And the, the man, I read a newspaper article, James Gregory, was, I think, the one man that was in charge of Nelson Mandela for most of those 27-odd years of imprisonment, said that he was given the task of humiliating and debilitating Nelson Mandela. That was the task he was given. Everything he could to demoralize him. But he said he knew that he was different. He couldn't keep going with that task. And Mandela came out of that prison with his spirit intact and was elected president of that country and stood up on that day of his inauguration with, with de Klerk, the, the one of the you know, mainstays of a, the apartheid program, and held his hand and said, we are going into a place of truth and reconciliation. Yes, we'll find the truth as best we can, but the emphasis on reconciliation, letting go, it's just, he's just such an inspiration, what he did with his life. And another story I read, so powerful about this, what can happen when we forgive. It's a story of a man who, when he was quite young, I think he was a teenager, at home with his family, and these two people came in and basically attacked his family, shot them, and left them for dead. He was the only one who survived out of all his family. And later, he actually became a U.S. senator. His name is um, Douglas. And it just happened that he was touring um, a prison where these two men were being held. He hadn't intended anything about this. It was just part of his process of being a senator. Fifteen years later, after numerous trials and retrials, one of them was on death row, another serving a life sentence. 
For reasons he didn't quite understand, he struggled, suddenly had a strong urge to meet them. One agreed to a meeting, the other declined. For an hour and a half, sitting across a glass divide from the man who had shot his family, Douglas said he had an out-of-body experience, saying words to this man he never dreamed he'd say. This man was extremely remorseful and cried through most of the conversation, as did Douglas. As he got up to leave, Douglas said to him, I forgive you. When he said these words, this is quotes, all of a sudden it felt like it was a poison pouring out of the bottom of my feet. It was one of the most physical sensations I've ever had, like someone took a clamp off my chest. I felt I could breathe again for the first time in 15 years. It's a physical experience. It's physical when we don't forgive, when we feel stuck, frozen in that non-forgiveness. And it's physical when we do forgive. When we find that possibility of letting go, hopefully for you not as extreme as that story, but for all of us, we're on that journey of opening to everything in our experience. Everything can be known. Everything we can come into touch, come into touch with and say, this too, this too. No part left out because we'll be asked to forgive again and again and again. This is an imperfect world, and we're imperfect beings in it. Our willingness to engage in this practice, to open as best we can, as willingly as we can, to this dynamic engagement with our experience, to accept it, to allow it, to bring compassion to it, is what will ultimately allow us to be truly present, truly here for every aspect of what's happening. I want to just finish with a poem by Hafez, who writes so beautifully about being in the world and loving it. It's called Today. I do not want to step so quickly over a beautiful line on God's palm as I move through Earth's marketplace today. I do not want to touch any objects in this world without my eyes testifying to the truth that everything is my beloved. Something has happened to my understanding of existence that now makes my heart always full of wonder and kindness. I do not want to step so quickly over this sacred place on God's body that is right beneath your own foot as I dance with precious life today. So let's just sit together for a moment.
And our practice is to know ourselves completely, no part left out. Thank you for your attention. It's time for walking and then we'll come back, last sit with chanting.